The lectionary in the summertime often includes many of the Old Testament stories that we may remember from growing up in Sunday school. We don't often hear them because we tend to move toward the gospel and the epistles. But for the next two weeks, I've chosen to take us into the Old Testament. And today we will hear God's word in a reading from Genesis 25:19 through 34. Listen now for the word of God. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abram's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padim Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of the game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts that we may hear and receive your word through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Every family has its stories. How grandmother met grandfather how they dated and wed, how their first house was blown away in a hurricane and all was lost, how the family showed up, took everyone home, and helped rebuild, how the children fought and grew. My mother worked diligently on our family history. First, on her side of the family, the Lauderdales from Thurlstane Castle, south of Edinburgh, descended from the Duke of Lauderdale, who was once crowned King of Scotland. And then on my father's side, 
from northern Germany where accounts of sausages and farming filled family ledgers. Every family has its stories, tragedies, comedies, tall tales, and legends, good or bad. They matter to us because they explain us in some way. They help us find our place in the history of the world. These are my people, and this is how they lived. And in many cases, because they help us understand why we are the way we are. By telling family stories, we rehearse our family virtues as well as its faults. We, we find that each of us are simply the most recent players in the age-old drama of life and death that unites us with every human being who ever walked the earth. We also share a story and a heritage as members of the family of God. A story that began with a promise to Abraham and continues in the Old Testament reading this morning. It's hard to imagine a more congenial setting for the birth of children. Isaac, the father, is a son of the promise made to Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. And through you, all of the nations of the world shall be blessed. His genealogy is set. Great pains have been taken to find a proper mother to bear his children. And we find that Rebecca comes from a good family, so all the ingredients for a smooth transition into the next generation are in place. It sounds too good to be true, and evidently it is. For like Sarah, her mother-in-law, Rebecca is barren. But the problem that Isaac and Rebecca have is theological and not biological. They come to recognize that their dilemma is faith-based, and they pray to Yahweh, who is the sole source of life and the future. Even before their birth, Jacob and Esau, seem destined for conflict. Rebecca feels the boys struggling within her. The Hebrew verb is even stronger. It says that they crush each other. When Jacob is born, he's holding on to his brother's heel as if he were trying to keep Esau from being born first. In response to Rebecca's request for understanding, God speaks an ominous word. There will be an inversion, and she will bring into the world a scandalous, unnatural conflict where the elder son will serve the younger. The narrator makes it clear that their positioning is not a physiological accident, but a result of God's action, a decision that God does not explain or justify but simply announces. But this event is not simply a family matter. God's intervention cuts away at the basic social fabric of ancient Near Eastern society. Through these actions, the whole social order is potentially thrown into confusion. 
how can it be that the older will serve the younger? This is not the way things are supposed to work. As Roman pointed out, you think they got a little upset? After their birth, the struggle between the boys continues. When Esau comes out of the womb, he is described as hairy and red, which the, the Hebrew word for red is Adamoni, Adamoni, which is a word play on Edom, which becomes his name as well as his offspring. He grows up to be an outdoor type who hunts and fishes. Jacob, on the other hand, likes to stay at home to cook and work around the house. Obviously, the rivalry is, not, is only going to get worse since Jacob is favored by his mother and Esau is favored by his dad. The two boys were a disaster waiting to happen. Though it really wasn't that one was the sinner while the other was the saint. They were both equally capable of irresponsible and devious acts. A fact that encourages is made worse by the reality that in Jacob's case, his mother encourages and facilitates his wrongdoing. Yet both boys were recipients of God's blessing and destined to become the fathers of two great nations, Israel and Edom. As is generally the case in family breakdowns, the real crunch time comes over something as trivial as a bowl of stew. Esau is famished, having worked all day in the field. He comes home and smells the red stew that his brother has been cooking on the stove. And Esau says, give me some of that red stuff. Jacob says, it's not red stuff, it's beef bourguignon. And you can't have any. But why not, says Esau. I'm starving. Okay, says Jacob. I'll tell you what. You give me your birthright, make me the heir to the family fortune, sign over all your inheritance to me, make me the older brother, firstborn in the family, etc., and I'll give you a small bowlful. And Esau says, yeah, okay. And thus he gives up his birthright. Jacob now has long-term entitlement and Esau short-term satisfaction. The central image of this text is conflict. Conflicting loyalties, conflicting ideas, conflicting desires, conflicting loves. There's conflict between Isaac and Rebekah, conflict between lifestyles of Jacob and Esau, conflict between the purposes of God and the cultural traditions regarding inheritance. Even Jacob's name suggests the substance of the conflict. In Hebrew, Jacob's name means he who grabs by the heel, or the one who supplants. Hebrew names carried with them the sense of character and purpose. So giving the second twin the name Jacob the one who is grasping after his brother's rightful dues, was inviting trouble. Conflict 
continues to permeate our lives today. So what are we to do about it? The struggle between Jacob and Esau persists as they continue to war with each other today in roughly the same area of land as they did back then. The weaponry and the rhetoric have both become more sophisticated. But underneath it all, we still have two brothers who continue to clash. Where is God's purpose in the escalating war in the Middle East? Where is God's blessing in the deaths of Israeli and Palestinian children and teenagers? Or in the increase of gang wars in Guatemala, which have sent young children to the borders of our country fleeing for their lives? Or in the fracturing of families by betrayal and divorce? If the divisions of the world are from birth and forever, if tensions and conflicts will always be part of life, if even new life brings despair and pain, why then should we bother? Why do we live? Where is the grace? Where is the hope? Where is the promise? In the story of Jacob and Esau, as elsewhere in the biblical drama and in our world today, God is in the process of turning things upside down. The first are being moved to the back and the last are becoming first. The older brother, who should have been set up for life as the inheritor of the estate and the new lord of the manor, is finding himself dispossessed by the cunning little brother that he still can't believe is really his sibling. I believe that at the heart of the stories of the patriarchs and the whole of the history in the book of Genesis is the truth that God does things through the lives of the strangest and most awkward of people. When God looked out over the whole world to find a people that he could call his own, the people that he would bless with privilege, the privilege of being a blessing to the whole world, he chose what oftentimes looks like the B team, the replacements, the ones who didn't even have the illusion of having their act together. God chose people just like us. We don't have to be perfect or have everything figured out before God will bless us, and we can be a blessing to the world. The name for this reality is grace. God gives us a gift when we don't deserve it. And that gift calls us to struggle to bring about a new and better life. It calls us to persevere in working for justice and peace in a world that is broken and full of violence. It calls us to greater and broader humanitarian efforts and working with God in healing and hope-filled ministries. The good news is that God's grace is greater than our sin. In spite of his lack of morals, Jacob succeeds. 
and all of his schemes finally bring about the results that God intended. There is no conflict between Jacob's ingenuity and God's purposes. Human freedom must always be seen in the context of the purposes of a gracious God. Beyond our scheming is a loving, forgiving God who can use all types of people and situations in the service of God's ultimate divine purpose. It is in the grace of God that we also should place our hope as we travel through whatever conflicts touch our own lives and the world. At the end of the day, Jacob and Esau are what they are and what they become by the grace of God. In our lives, it can be no different. This story declares a fundamental truth about our human nature. We are all not always good at heart, and at times we can be schemers and plotters and manipulators, just like Jacob. Nevertheless, God continues to call such people and to call us to be divine partners. That same God has chosen us to have a voice in our history as it unfolds. In the final analysis, we are not left to the mercy of our own mistakes and decisions. For beyond those decisions and mistakes is a God who has a hand in guiding our destiny. Most of us, at one time or another, are tempted to feel that our actions or thoughts have placed us beyond God's reach. But the story of Jacob affirms that when it comes to choosing people, God's blessing will be worked out in history in spite of human character. We can't explain why God works as God does, so we're left to marvel, to give thanks. The story of Jacob and Esau is our story, a story with everything human in it, promise and failure, blame and guilt, forgiveness, healing, and hope. A story about us and a story about our God who did not create us just once but goes on creating us forever, putting our pieces back together so that we are never ruined, never entirely. This is the biblical hope. This is the grace and promise of God. This is the thread that runs through these ancient scriptures and connects us back to these people of old and which points us in hope to a new tomorrow. It's not a hope of short-term stability, but promise of a new relationship and a new world. How amazing. Amen.